The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withhold. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came down and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the incredible privilege of hearing your word read to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come now and be our teacher, and that you would equip us as disciples of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In my sermon this morning online, I said, nothing that you can see Nothing that you cannot see, nothing from the past and the present for the future, nothing is beyond the scope or the reach or the authority of the risen Lord Jesus. Do you believe that? Say yes, Bishop. That's very reassuring. That's a good way to start a sermon for a confirmation service. So with that in mind, this afternoon, wherever you may be in terms of belief or unbelief, doubt or indecision, I invite you to take a look afresh at this Jesus of the resurrection whom we are proclaiming in our service today. In his letter to Christians in Colossae, St. Paul writes to people like you and me, people who are hungry to know what it means to follow Christ, 
This letter we have in the New Testament, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, is a letter that speaks first and foremost about what the late Dr. John Stott called, about who what the late John, Dr. John Stott called, the incomparable Christ. It speaks of Jesus, and that's a good thing. And we learn lessons from this epistle, this letter, to take away from this service today. For the Colossians, their understanding of Jesus had grown a little bit muddled. And they had a resulting spirituality that began to devalue him. Yes, they knew he was Lord of all, but they tended to add other things to their faith. They were saying that Jesus was not quite adequate enough to meet their needs or deal with their enemies or provide for them the security they needed for their life. His majesty, as a result, the majesty of Christ was being dethroned. His power was being questioned and his salvation was being challenged. Tragically, we see much of that in some parts of the church around the world today. So Paul, the apostle, the church planter, the urban missionary, writes as this Christ-filled, Christ-intoxicated letter, which offers a comprehensive revision of who Jesus is. And we're going to look at it briefly in our time together this afternoon. Let me set the scene. Paul is, is likely to be in prison in Ephesus while he's writing this letter, not because he's a bad person, but because he was in prison for the faith that we are confessing in our church services today. The city of Colossae itself is on the sea coast of modern-day Turkey, and Paul is writing to a new church in a town about a hundred miles inland. And the Christians in Colossae, as I said, had become a little loosened from their theological foundations and moorings. They'd begun to incorporate some of the elements of paganism, which they saw in the community into their worship. And whatever the exact problem was, indeed, whatever our problems might be, the wisdom of Paul wants to set before them and us and before everything else the supremacy and lordship of Jesus. Get this right and we get Christianity right. Grasp this truth and these truths and there's protection not just against theological error, but frankly against most of our spiritual and current, uh, cultural and political problems. If you have access to a Bible, either online or uh, with you in your hands, or go back into our service order because it's printed there, let's look at those five verses of Colossians chapter 1. Because here, amazingly, we have a concentrated statement of who Jesus is. Amazingly, what has been said about the carpenter of Nazareth, 30 years after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's pretty staggering, isn't it? You can't get much earlier than this. And this is who we believe in. This is doctrine on fire. So with the help of some other theologians, I want to offer you these insights this afternoon. Firstly, let's look at Jesus, the Jesus of Easter, the Jesus of the Alleluias. Let's look at him in his relationship to God the Father. Look with me in verse 15. 
Do you see it there? It's one of the most impacting verses in my own Christian discipleship. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We live in a city here that is rather obsessed with image. We're told here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But how do we know a God we cannot see? Where do we start? Well, this is the Greek word, icon. In fact, in our breakout groups, uh, uh, Pastor, today I was sitting with one of your members who had some wonderful icons behind him on the screen. That's what this is saying. Jesus is the icon of God. He's the exact representation, the precise copy. So to call Jesus the icon of God is to say that he is, he alone is, the perfect portrait of God Almighty. Have you ever wondered what God is like? Those of you who actively share your faith, so often someone will say to you, but what's he like, this God? How can we know him? How can we see him? If you've ever wondered what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Because in him, the invisible becomes visible. There is nothing of God that we need to know that we cannot find or that cannot be seen in Jesus. It's wonderful. The mind of Jesus is the mind of God. The words of Jesus are the words of God. That's why often in our Anglican order, some of you did it today, we stand when we have the gospel reading because we're hearing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The actions of Jesus are the actions of God. The attitudes of Jesus are the attitudes of God. He is the definitive revelation of the living God. Do you see how mind-blowing this is? God is not holding back anything from us which will not be found in Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you know God. The unknowable is all of a sudden knowable in Christ. The image of the invisible God. Secondly, again, look, verse 15 in that first verse. Do you see it there of our passage? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. This is what I mentioned this morning. Verse 17 puts beyond doubt that Jesus is, do you notice, before all things. He is before all things. Primacy, honor, prestige, position. No one ranks higher even though they might try to be. We're more important than Jesus, said the Beatles. Well, where are they now? No one ranks higher than him. He is the firstborn over all creation. And look thirdly, verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Allow me to explain why this is so very important for us two millennia later in New York City. There are two key applications for us in these verses. The first one is this. Because all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, Jesus needs no supplement. Would you say supplement? I take a lot of supplements. My doctor gives them to me. He thinks I'll be the better person for them. Ask Brenda and she'll tell you whether it's true. But Jesus needs no supplement. 
there can be no fuller revelation than Jesus. Why? Because, verse 19, the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. Fullness, um, fullness was a great Gnostic word, and we're seeing some of that Gnostic concept reappear in contemporary spirituality today. For, so for so many of us, there always has to be something more. We've got the word of God, say Christians, but that there's got to be something more. We know that we have the fullness of God in Jesus, but there's got to be something more. And St. Paul says, no. No, says the Apostle Paul. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. God has no more to give than he gives us in Jesus. You see, you cannot supplement him. For supplementing something that there, implies that there is a deficiency. And there is no deficiency in Jesus. That's why Paul says to struggling Christians in the second chapter of this letter, you have been given fullness. It's a beautiful word. You have been given fullness. Where? In Wall Street? No. An image? Well, in the image of God, who is Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. There's nothing missing that we need if we're a Christian. And there's nothing short, there's nothing inadequate, there's nothing to supplement our faith because Jesus needs no supplement. Here's the second thing. Jesus has no rival. Would you say rival? rival. Think about those words, supplement and rival. Jesus has no rival. You know, we often see in contemporary literature the equal forces of dark and light, of good and evil, fighting against each other on a, on, a, on a level plane. But that is not how we find it in the Scriptures. And it's a hard truth to proclaim in our society. The Gnostics back then and now recognized Jesus as one of the great religious leaders of all time. He's up there with the greats. But the Apostle Paul would say to us, Fullness, fullness applies only to Jesus. And this sounds the death knell for that most popular of current religious heresies called syncretism. Suggest today that faith in God is found in Christ alone, and people will call you intolerant. You know, the world is tolerant of everything except the intolerant claim that claim that Christ is our only Lord who requires our allegiance and our submission. Listen again, I've quoted him already to uh, the late Dr. John Stott, Anglican author, writing about Jesus who said, to relegate Christianity to one chapter in the book of world religions is to Christian people intolerable because Jesus has no rival. Secondly, let's, let's look at Jesus and his relation to creation for a moment. Because there's also a lot of talk about creation. Because there's no point in asserting Jesus' deity if he wasn't there at creation, if he wasn't involved in creation. And again, Paul doesn't disappoint us. Look verse 16 of our short passage. Do you see it there? For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, look with me, all things were created through him and for him. Abraham Kuyper, the founder of the Free University of Amsterdam and later Prime Minister of the Netherlands, 
wasn't afraid to assert the lordship of Christ, he said, and I quote, there is not one square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. It's mine, says Jesus. And the early scientists were in very many cases, profound believers with confidence in Christ's role in the whole of created order. But today we somehow think that that Jesus could never be the master of law or of economics or of art or of business. But I get the sense reading this letter to the Colossians that the Apostle Paul would have none of that. Look in verse uh, of chapter 2, if you've got Bibles there, in verse 3. If not, I'll read it to you. Because here's the word of the Lord. In him, writes Paul, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are they to be found, brothers and sisters? In Christ. In Christ, if you're an economist... What does that mean for you? If you are a lawyer, what does that mean for you? For a bishop like me, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're found in him. It's very liberating this, isn't it? We must never lose sight of what Alistair McGrath calls the discipleship of the mind. He writes, Jesus is intellectually luminous, spiritually persuasive, and infinitely satisfying. Is that how you find him? Because that is the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's also, secondly, look with me in in verse 17 again. He is, in him we find, all things hold together. Now, this is very reassuring for any of us who are a little unsettled by politics or ideologies or even the church. We find in Christ all things hold together. I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I find this verse very reassuring. At the heart of the universe, there is, in fact, a personality There is authority, there is security, there is love. And all these things exist in Christ, in Him. And that little phrase, all things, resonates through this passage as if to underline that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing outside the power and authority of Jesus. And that includes verse 16, look with me, the forces, the powers, Yes, the authorities, the things we cannot control, the things that frighten us, the things that we don't want, nothing, nothing. Things we can't see, nothing from the past, the present, the future, nothing is outside the scope of his creation authority. We just need to take a deep breath, brothers and sisters. Take a deep breath and say, Jesus. You see, in him, all things hold together. If you find yourself getting worked up, and you can imagine with a personality like mine, I get worked up from time to time, remind yourself, as I must, in him, all things hold together. (sighs) Thank you, Jesus. John Wesley wrote, the great uh, preacher, 
He wrote, Jesus is the cement as well as the support. So no matter what headline we might read in the New York Times, no matter what global disaster or pandemic or crisis or election result, Christ is ultimately in control. It is good news. And thirdly, look verse 16. He is the goal of all creation. All things were created by him and for him. The whole purpose of creation is that it may bring Christ pleasure and do his bidding to bring him glory and honor. Nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from young people, the most boring school subject to the most fascinating science, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human being like my wife. All things were created by him, and notice, for him. Everything exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known. And that includes you and me and the person you find the most hardest to love. They exist for him. And so we've considered Jesus in relation to God, Jesus in relation to creation. Again, not all of these original to me. Jesus in relationship to his church, finally, as we conclude. Look verse 18, if you've got your Bibles there, towards the end of our passage. Jesus, firstly, is the head of the body, the church. And Paul makes the staggering claim that this small, feeble, little group of Christians in Colossae are the creation of the Lord of creation and are ruled over by him because he is the head of the body. Next again in the same verse, he is the firstborn from the dead, first to rise. He's the guarantor of and pattern for new humanity. His resurrection on that Easter morning guarantees yours and it guarantees mine. Even now he, he shares his risen life with us today by his spirit. In verse 20, he is the supreme reconciler. The scope of Christ's reconciliation is not simply personal, it's universal. Jesus, through him, God reconciles all things to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, here on this damp Sunday in the season of Easter, here in New York City, how do we react to all of this? How do we respond? What's our response to this breathtaking, Christ-intoxicated gospel? Six very quick things. Firstly, believe these things. Believe them. They're the word of God. Secondly, worship him. When you believe these things, doesn't your heart want to worship with hands lifted up and voices extended even with masks? thanking God for the gift of his son, Jesus. Because above all powers and kings and nature and created things is Christ, and we worship him. Thirdly, when we read these things in Colossians about Jesus, this great anthem, this great Christ-centered anthem, we can trust the Lord. Paul was concerned that these Christians were being captivated by high-sounding uh, heresies, See to it that no one takes us captive to them. 
we read in the New Testament. We can trust Christ because of what the Word of God says about Him. Fourthly, it reminds us to be courageous. When we believe these things about Jesus, we can be courageous as a result of Him. And Paul wants to make clear that when Christians feel small and vulnerable, and when the state or the culture or the ideology feels so powerful, when forces and darkness seem to have the last word, we don't need to panic. In fact, we must not panic if we believe these things. We are to keep steady, to keep steady because above the thrones and the dominions and the rulers and the powers is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. So we can be courageous. We rejoice, fifthly, we rejoice because of these things about Jesus, our hearts rejoice. They're filled with praise and thanksgiving. And then finally, we can be confident. Paul tells us these things in this first chapter of this letter to the Colossians because he wants us to see and to feel and to believe that our salvation in Christ is invincible. Never doubt the certainty of what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the great exchange. Christ's righteousness for my sin. Never doubt that and be confident in who we are in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, you gave your only Son to be for us both a sacrifice for sin and an example of godly living. Give us grace, thankfully, to receive his inestimable benefits, daily to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.